0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to One Control Report Podcast, episode two. No, not two. Back in the past this week. Uh, 341. My name is Benjamin Yoder here today to talk to you about video games. I got a really long list of notes here this week, so I don't know if that's going to translate to a long episode or not, but uh, I guess buckle in maybe. Uh, we're going to talk about financial reports, everyone's favorite. Um, I think there's some interesting things to kind of take out of this, um, not only from like the Japan industry as a whole, um, Konami's kind of place in the Japanese industry but also uh fashion dreamer. We talked about fashion dreamer last week and how I was like oh maybe it was such a big success that maybe those uh those pretty rhythm games were uh shutting down and uh <laughs> maybe that's not the case. <laughs> um which speaking of which, I said pretty cure last week and I think the thing I never really figured out in my head was like are pretty cure and pretty rhythm related? I don't know if that's the case, so at some point in my life, I should probably look into that. As somebody who cares a lot about that genre of game, I probably should know, but um, I haven't really focused on those Pretty Rhythm games at all, so maybe someday when I actually dive in. There's a Switch one, but it's kind of pricey, so I think at some point I'll probably just either get it digitally or I don't know. Maybe I'll wait long enough that it becomes a just pirate it territory because it's no longer available for purchase on the eShop. But uh, someday I'll, I'll I'll check into that. So, um, speaking of which, you got some love and Berry and Mushi King. Uh, is it called Mushi King? Uh, I don't know what Mushi means, but bug King. I don't know. Don't ask me. I don't understand enough Japanese to tell you that. Uh, but love and Berry Mushi King, uh, retrospective talk stuff because, uh, there was uh, I think it's their anniversary this year. Um, I don't know what year, maybe it says in the section down here. Maybe I wrote that. Um, I don't know. But anyways. Um, and then we're also going to uh talk about uh re- really actually that's kind of mostly it. That's kind of it. A lot of financial talk and a lot of uh Love and Berry Mushi King talk. So get ready. <laughs> um before we do into that, or go into that rather, uh I just wanted to go ahead and talk about a handful of things that have been going on with me. Uh more content came out than I really expected, honestly, within the last two weeks. Um, one is I went ahead and wrote up a Kofi post. So Suicide Squad, right? The live service, I don't know how broad that game is. Batman related live service game. I think it's like DC in general and like the whole idea is like the evil characters are the good guys and they have to fight the bat the good guys who are now evil because they got like virused or something into being bad guys. I don't really understand it. Don't ask me. Um, the reception to that game overall, from what I can tell, has been, okay, like, people don't seem to love it, people don't seem to hate nice looking game, um, shooting feels decent, but the actual, like, melee combat isn't so great from what I understand, but I don't know, I, I haven't really made a concerted effort to understand what's going on, but man, gleaning up to its release, it definitely seemed like a situation where people were gonna give it a real hard time in the way that you know. If you know me, you know I would get frustrated by, um, so just to kind of, like... I kind of felt like maybe I should have a little bit more of a formal, um, written or some kind of piece that basically organized my thoughts over as a game content creator. Like what is probably the right language to use in situations like that. And what it ultimately ended up becoming was a a Kofi post I did that kind of talks about, um, What are good things to communicate and what are bad things to communicate? Um, Really coming down to like, if you're going to explain yourself using concrete things to explain yourself is ultimately better than trying to um, attribute how you feel to things you don't understand, right? So, you know, instead of attributing how a game looks and feels to play to it being on Unity, you attribute it to what about that game um, makes it look and feel the way it does, right? Um, And it's tough, you know, especially when you're doing, like, off-the-cuff commentary. Like, it's not easy to do that. But I think the big thing is, is that when you start pointing at specific things you don't have any knowledge of, it's, A, kind of ignorant, but then also if you get into, like, the space of, like, hey, this developer was just lazy or this developer was just cheap – Like, that gets into, like, kind of derogatory terms about, you know, somebody who worked on something, and especially when we talk about individual creatives and things like that, Um, you know, again, the game industry, not exactly a place you go to get rich, uh, at least for most people. Um, so, you know, sitting there and and saying somebody is greedy, uh, if they're greedy, they would go work on business software. (laughs) So, um, I have definitely in my own life made the decisions, uh, to not like pursue game writing and pursue business writing because that is going to give me the most money to stay alive. So (laughs) that's things I have done in my life. Um, but also because, you know, games writing hard to make money through games writing, but, I'm sure eventually there's a point where the amount I would lose make doing games writing versus business writing would uh, would transition over. But I am nowhere near that amount <laughs> when it comes to games writing and what I could do for that. So anyways, that's really it. Um, it's one of those things that like I have to be really careful about. When I say these things, like don't say these kind of things about games, right? What I'm not saying is don't be critical of games. Um, what I'm not saying is don't, you know express your displeasure about games i think people often get really mixed up about that and frequently when i am like having these things where i'm talking about like final Fantasy 14 and things like that people just tell you just be okay not liking it and it's like that like and so there's like an acceptableness to that i think to some extent right Where, where i think for me if you're if you're writing as if you're a gaming commentator at least professionally or trying to have some kind of like expertise in that space. I think the article literally is like the expertise of gaming commentary. I don't even remember the title of it. Um, you know, I think there is more responsibility to you to choose your words correctly and, and things like that. And so, just saying, you know, it's it's okay to pass on something just because you're not interested in it and stuff like that, right? And not know how to explain yourself. But I think the more invested you get in a game and the more you commentate it and the more authoritative you're about the things you're saying, the more and more you need to know what you need to say about things. But anyways, so, so the point being is that, like, it's not about, you know, saying only talk about something if it's positive. It's about talking about things, you know, in ways that are, um, um, you can support with with basically facts right it is basically trying to do factual based Feelings, writing in some way. So, anyways, I explained it way better in the actual Kofi post. So, if you want to go read that, you can go check that out on my Kofi. Uh, I also think it's just straight up on my website. If you want to read it there as well, uh, PCFX Fan Club podcast came out. We took a look at kind of the uh, rumors and speculation around the PCFX, and uh, and also looked into some stuff regarding the Sega Saturn, what Sega was doing, and ultimately, I think the podcast we didn't really plan on it for it to be this, but it ultimately came out to be, you know, who caused the PCFX to fail. Um, and ultimately I don't think we really answered the question of that, but that was kind of the point of looking into the things of like, okay, these are the big things people talk about. What information can we get about them? And what can we understand about, you know, how the, uh, system kind of came to be what it is and why it failed ultimately, rather than looking at like, oh, it didn't have shooters anymore. Just like, mm, I don't know about you, but, uh, PlayStation era shooters were not exactly the next hot big thing um which is something we kind of talk about in there so that's up if you want to go listen to that and then uh, also i had a podcast highlight or video review however you want to look at it of uh saz heads or tails dlc the original video went up with sound effects in it on accident so i had to fix that but it is now in there and good and proper uh so three things since the last time big deal big deal nothing big though unfortunately but you know all of them take time. Well, the, the PCFX Fan Club podcast took a long time. Pretty much all of January was dedicated to trying to get that PCFX Fan Club podcast uh, put together, which was uh, very tiring on me. So, <laughs> so yeah. Um, not a lot of game playing uh, for me still at the moment. I'm hoping to play a little bit more this weekend, but I'm recording this uh, in kind of like the first half of my weekend here. Um, I did start getting back on board the learning Japanese train um so i've I'm deep enough in that again to feel comfortable talking about that again here um and so you know I'm going back to uh Yves Gamon's my Japanese coach on the d s um and I think I've talked about this before, but what I find with Yves Gamon's lessons is um I often don't get enough information from there, so I feel like I have to go elsewhere to understand. Um, what exactly I am trying to learn from the thing they're trying to get me to do in there. Um, I think there's just a lot of limitations with that product as a whole. Um, But my plan is still to get through that product overall. I'm kind of in this period right now where I'm I'm spe- specifically working on verbs and understanding verbs. And again, the DS game is like very pushing at you to be like, you should understand these by now. And it's like, you didn't really explain these things. <laughs> so um trying to find other people to, uh, to explain those things um, is helpful and uh, not really related, but I also did buy that Jujutsu Kaisen uh, typing game, which is typing in Japanese. I assume that's just going to be, you know, the typing in the kana essentially for, for, you know. Instead of, you know, doing any kanji, you're just going to type it in basically how all the words sound, basically. But um, I don't know. I just was thinking about it. I was like, that seemed like a cool game. And Jujutsu Kaisen stuff is still kind of floating around because the other game coming out. And I was like, I'd much rather play the typing one. And, hey, you know what uh, would be nice? Practicing some Japanese typing as well. So why not, baby? So uh, I'm ordering that. Uh, ordered that through Amazon. Uh, and it was like, or after shipping and everything, it's was like 50 bucks. So not bad. And I think they sell digital versions. It's not a CD as far as I'm aware. So... Uh, I don't know what that code's gonna be and where I redeem that code, so hopefully it won't be a problem. But uh, but we will, we will, we will hope. But um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing I still struggle with with learning Japanese right now is really defining what I'm trying to do with learning Japanese. Right? Clearly, I think I need to and have an interest. Um, but like when I think about like oh, playing games in Japanese, that's not super appealing to me. I mean, I would do it and I would definitely like have no problem doing it, but like that's not my end goal. I think that's something I wonder about a lot with like people and their end goals with with learning Japanese, right? I often hear I don't know, I often hear the the kind of stepping stones in that process, right? Like somebody want to get in N5, N4, N3 or whatever. I don't even know what direction. I haven't even thought about the N whatever tests they're called at this point. I just I have no need for that. I guess if you're trying to get professional work, I don't know if like the end goal people to try to go work in Japan, Japanese work culture does not seem fun. Um, stuff like that. So, um, yeah, I don't know. Sometimes it feels hard for me to understand like why people do what they need to with Japanese and like what they like, not that they need to tell me. Um, but I, I, I think, think a lot about like why people are pursuing Japanese and what different ways they're pursuing Japanese and stuff like that. And, um, I think, you know, everyone probably pursues it for different reasons. And, um, you know, I, I, I think I've often wondered like, Oh, for people to do fan translations, like what is the drive behind that? And I don't know. So I've necessarily found the answer to that. Honestly, I say as somebody who doesn't do fan translations, right. But I am curious about it, but anyways, um, I did, uh, I was kind of curious. So there's a website called auto Modern media. Um, we've talked about it on the the podcast a handful of times and, um, they do translations of Japanese articles, but I think they also write original articles as well. And I've never really asked the question of like, who writes those things? Um, Andrea saying was like another website a long time ago as well, that did a similar thing. And I'm like, who, who's translating these? And I know they've also, you know, managed their own Western content as well. So there's some, I think decision-making happening separately from the Japanese branch of, of Automata Media specifically. Um, and I found out it's like two ladies um, who, who, uh, as far as I can tell, work out of the uh, Japanese office. Um, and it's interesting because they have like zero identifiable social media presidents, which is like, hey, respect. Like, <laughs> keep your privacy or whatever. Um, I did find one's LinkedIn page and uh, kind of just like looked into their background a little bit. And it, it was kind of interesting because it was kind of... I think they're they're more or less my age, but um um they basically uh you know went to school and got a bachelor's in Japanese and then uh went over and did like public relations communications and stuff like i mean, I think they did the English teacher thing, but they got into like p r writing and stuff like that and then uh, uh eventually ended up here um which it was a fairly like non like descript uh background mostly just like business writing and stuff like that, and then eventually. Um, ended up writing for like a Japanese uh, video game and anime merchandise exporter. I'm curious if that was like always the goal or whatever. Um, but yeah, so I, I was just kind of curious like who ended up there and how they did. If it was it was like a, a Japanese person who you know, learn English and now they're translating it back or if it was vice versa. And it seems like it was the other way where, where somebody studied. Um, I think in, in the case of the one I was looking at, she's from the UK specifically. So um, it was interesting. Uh, I won't say their names just cause I don't know how up in front they want that to be really. I mean, you can find it if you really want to, but um you know given they have like zero social media presence i i don't think they want to be communicated with so <laughs> so but um it, it it's interesting uh to kind of see that path right and um you know i think it's one of those things that like i don't really know what my relationship with japanese should be going forward but you know i am doing things like reading a lot of like interviews with people in the game industry from japan and also i was reading a blog post from someone named uh, um Hane Soft, I think is what it's called. Hane Soft. I don't know if it's supposed to be Hane or like Honey. I don't know like what the Japanese spelling of Honey is. Um, but it was like a MSX. Uh, well, it was a somebody who made MSX like adventure games as far as I can tell. And they had like a blog post talking about like their, their all the PCs they got and how they they learned that they could do dig, digital art and stuff. And I think that stuff's like super interesting And I think it's cool that they're out there and up front and talking about that stuff. Um, And I I don't know. It's one of those things that like, yeah, like having machine translation barrier just makes it harder to know for sure what's going on. I mean, obviously, I think to some degree with translation, and this is true for all language, right? Everybody tries to communicate things certain ways, and then you just kind of have to interpret that on your own with your knowledge of your own language or another language, right? And then figure out if you understood what they're saying. And there's a very good chance you're not going to understand what they're saying. Um, either way, again, a native tongue kind of thing as well. So, um, I don't know, but like, I don't know if that's like my interest in that is something that is like something I want to pursue long-term. I don't know. It's like something like it would be helpful for the PCFX fan club and stuff like that. And communicating with people in these Japanese fan bases has been like an interesting aspect to me. So I think I always say like conversations in Japanese are probably more important to me. But I guess I don't really know what the end goal is for me to learn Japanese. Not that, you know, you ever stop learning Japanese. But, like, what would I want to do with this that um, would would benefit me, I guess? I, have, I think it's clear there are many benefits for me. But I don't know what is, like, my focus. And at the end of the day, maybe you don't need that. But it's something I would like to define for myself sometime. So, anyways... It was interesting. Um, I, one of the articles I read was like "Romance of the Three Kingdoms" uh, interview with a uh, four gamer, and um, that was basically not anything too terribly special, but it was it was kind of interesting because it seems like the articles bend is basically or that series bend is basically to interview people who are just kind of more behind the scenes people in the industry, and they're getting old enough where they might retire soon. And so the the guy is like the romance of the three kings director or whatever like that and like he doesn't really have a huge presence it sounds like based off what I was reading from the article and uh his thoughts on basically how the company has changed in the last 30 years and things like that and how development has changed and people's interests in in romance of the three kingdoms and like when they get developers today like what do they f- say they want to do when they join the company versus when it was like 20 years ago Um, One thing he mentioned was the fact that like more people today talk about wanting to make their own thing versus um, 20 years ago, it was often people coming in wanting to work on a franchise. Um, So somebody would come in saying, I want to work on this franchise and be a part of this where now it seems like most people are like, I want to create my own thing. Um, which, you know, there's the indie game space being a part of that too. So it's interesting to see that kind of like change in trend. I don't know how much of that might be informed by him being like a Romance of the Three Kingdoms guy, right? So, you know, how does the Romance of the King- Three Kingdoms, uh, position in the market change, you know, the type of people applying to that job? So, uh, they worked at Koei Tecmo, by the way, is where, where the company is. It used to, I think, I think Romance of the Three Kingdom was originally a Koei thing, if I remember correctly. So anyways, um, Oh, I didn't allude to this at the start of the podcast, but one thing I did want to mention as well, I don't really know if I have a lot to say about this, is uh Mabin Nogi, is that how you pronounce that? I think it's a Korean MMO. Um, interesting situation here with them where uh, this game's been around since about 2004. Um, and, you know, so in the line with, you know, a lot of those old school PS2 RPGs and things like that, it was a PC game though. Um, but they're moving, uh, that game over to unreal engine five and, uh, it looks pretty dang good. Um, so it's, it's interesting to see this old Korean PC MMO get like such a facelift from like a 2004 engine all the way up to, you know, a a 2024 engine, right? 20 years later. And, uh, and then to commit to that, right? I don't know what the size of this, this, this game is. And, uh, you know, obviously at the end of the day, screenshots are one thing versus how it actually runs. Um, but it's interesting to see that. You know, one thing that kind of came up when uh, I was reading through the Final Fantasy XI interviews on their anniversary site is a, they talked to the director of Nobunaga's Ambition Online, which is something that I don't think we talk about much in the West because we don't really, aren't really aware of it as much because it's a Japan only online game for the PS2. Um, but it's a game that launched in the same window as Final Fantasy XI, and um, there's a lot of interesting things about it. I think I talked about it on the podcast before, maybe. If not, uh, I don't know. I don't know. But Maybe I didn't talk about this before. But uh, today, that is not the point, is to talk, talk about Nobunaga's Ambition Online. It's not the point of today. Um, but the, the thing that came up with the interview about Nobunaga's Ambition Online was um, the guy who made that mentioned the fact that they brought the game forward on every PlayStation. Um, and while they didn't have to necessarily do that for PlayStation 5, because it's already a PS4 game and runs on there, they were able to bring the game forward every time. And then he asked in the interview, why did Final Fantasy Eleven not take that approach, essentially? I'm, I'm doing this based off memory, so don't quote me exactly on this. And basically, the Final Fantasy Eleven guy <laughs> didn't really give a real answer. He basically was just like, You know, we would have to completely rebuild the tool set, which obviously, I mean, I don't know anything about development, but I assume Nobunaga's ambition online had to go through that same process of rebuild, you know, this, this game to work on modern hardware. And then, uh, and then, but maybe it's something to do with the back end tools. I don't know that like Nobunaga, Nobunaga's Ambition Online can still be used today. Their tool set versus Final Fantasy XI's, which is, uh, the problem with that game right now is that the tool set is crumbling and needs PS2 dev kits as far as I'm aware, uh, to keep going. Um, anyways, the point being is that it is available to play though. And, um, it was interesting that Final Fantasy Eleven is this really big PS2 RPG here in the West and, uh, it just... (laughs) has not gotten this consideration in the same way as these other games did. Uh, I think a big part of it, though, is, like, if I remember correctly, like, the intent behind Final Fantasy XIV was to replace Final Fantasy XI. It didn't seem like there was any real plans to keep Final Fantasy XI running um, and likely only continued after Final Fantasy XIV launched in the state it did, right? Um, So so it's interesting to see, again, every—well, I don't want to say everyone. The big players in this space that are still around— Still bringing their technology forward, where Final Fantasy XI seems to be in this constant state of peril of not knowing how to, you know, continue to run that game in a way that's uh, feasible. Right. So, anyways, uh, interesting thing. But uh, yeah, not, I'm I'm never gonna play. Not I don't. I do not know anything about Mobinogi. Mabi, Mobinogi. My my Mabis. In my nogis is on the way here. Uh, I'm just letting words come out now. Okay, let's talk about money, 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 money. Game data software. I'm just realizing. Speaking of money, I don't have a Kofi segment in this podcast. I should. Uh, oh, what was oh, what was the question I was supposed to answer? I was supposed to answer a question. Megamit, I'm abusing you this week on accident. I'm sorry. I was supposed to answer a question from you, and I'm just now realizing I don't even have it in the podcast notes here. Let's uh let's do a mega mint break here real quick before we get into uh, our main topic. <laughs> um, all right, I, f- I found Megamint's question. Again, sorry Megamint and also maybe I should say, I think it was just Megamint and Demo Dory who donated this last month. Um if I if I miss you, I will give you a super special shout out next week where I at least say your name twice. Uh, but I believe that was it. I'm already in a state of, of disrepair right now, uh, realizing this. But uh, Megamint, your question actually maybe is somewhat related to what we already talked about. Again, thank you again, Megamint and Demodori for your support this month on Kofi. fi um, And Megamint's question was, have you ever thought about moving to Japan at any point in your life? So we just got done talking about the and, and, and reasoning of why I would want to learn Japanese and stuff like that, right? And um. You know, I think naturally, and I've been asked this a few times, of just like, "Hey, um, why not move to Japan?" Right? Um, and uh, it's it's difficult because you have to think about. I think when 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 I was younger, right? There's definitely the appeal of just like, go to Japan. Why video games are cool. And, um, you know, I think I'm at the point in my life where I wouldn't say I would be a weeb per se. Like, I don't know. Like, I, what is a weeb in terms of, like, just, they wouldn't even use that word anymore. It's a very derogatory word back then of just, like, self-deprecating about, like, you know, how much you're into Japan. But I think th- th- at the time, the definition of weeb was, was kind of... Over glamorizing Japan and like if you're moving there you're like I think it's an anime and it's all great and I remember like being a kid I definitely thought that like Japan would obviously be the better place uh, to grow up when uh, (laughs) when you start looking into it Uh, not so much I mean that's true of everywhere in the world to some extent but you know for most part most developed nations you're gonna have probably a pretty similar life experience good and bad. I think it's only really when you start getting out of developed nations that things get a little more uh uneven and stuff like that which is a whole other conversation um but yeah so like actually moving to japan my so my challenge personally um because i think there would be a lot of benefits me moving to japan i enjoy my time and move living in or not living visiting japan and things like that um, my biggest i guess like the biggest sticking points for me would be two things one Is uh would there be issues with me culturally? I'm a very like loud-mouthed American and I am often um very happy to say my thoughts. Uh and I obviously there's stereotypes about every country and things like that, but um the general idea of what I've heard about like Japanese culture and things like that is like you generally don't want to just say your thoughts kind of, I don't know. Like, (laughs) again, I'm, I'm an American man who lives in the U S. So like, I'm not saying I say this with any confidence, just from what I've gathered from people is that you kind of are meant to kind of fit with the group. Right. And so if you don't fit with the group, it's a little weird, which admittedly I'm already a little weird here in the U S right. But I think it's a little bit more acceptable to my understanding. Again, I don't live there. If you've lived there and have any thoughts, let me know. I would love to understand that situation more. Um, but yeah, I think I'm, 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 am kind of just a loud mouth guy who's willing to say what I want. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm not afraid to, to say the things I feel. I think the big thing is, is that I do try to be empathetic with how I feel and make sure that, you know, the things I'm saying when I'm saying them generally are things that, um, are, are thought out if they aren't thought out i will try my very best to recognize them right how much how we've talked about final fantasy 14 on this show and then me turn around and complain about me talking about final fantasy 14 within the next minute right so i think there's a lot of reasons why culturally there might be some issues with that um and the other thing is work culture um as well the general gist i get is that with work, work culture in japan it is very um time consuming um, and there's um, that there, you're going to be asked to spend more time at work than um you know not well not going to be the stereotype again I've never worked in Japan and I don't know um, is that you know if you work at a company you're expected to to kind of be more present um, whether you need to be there or not you will be more present that's the stereotype right um and so I don't know again if you work in Japan I would love to hear your experience but the uh, I I would think I would be incompatible with those two things, um personally. So uh I won't say no. It would be a pretty big jump to do, though. And it yeah, it would be a pretty big decision to make. I need to make sure it'd be the decision that lines up with my life goals, right? Um, because, you know, it like all this stuff I do, all good and fun, right, Um, and I love looking at Japanese games and understanding Japanese uh, uh, opinions on games and stuff, and I need to ask myself, like, what would I be doing in Japan and and if it would make me happy, right, Um, and also, you know, all my family and stuff here in the U.S. and friends and, and, you know, the fact that, I mean, I have a hard time seeing them already um, just with how a busy I tend to keep and also just travel we're all spread out across the U.S. so it's not easy um but yeah it would be uh it would be a challenge and all that so um but on the on the bright side I do have a lot of friends who live out in Japan already and so you know if I did need help or something like that in that process I think they would be willing to um at least you know help me understand what I need to do um and hopefully you know I'm not somebody who needs a lot of social interaction. I'm an introvert. I'm kind of okay on my own <laughs> for the most part. But when I need social interaction, I think I could find it if I needed a more traditional American, good old Australian, UK, whatever, Western view of friendship, uh, that that could be done. Um, but I think obviously the the other thing would be like you'd get culturally, you know, uh, a relationship with like, like people in Japan might be like a different kind of thing from my understanding. But again, all these things are just things I've, I've, I've absorbed from looking at things online or, or things like that. It's not me saying I understand these things or that, you know, it's true across the board. Right. Um, um, you know, I, I think one of the things that I think a lot about is generally when we talk about the, um, idea that like, Japanese people are rule followers and are are not for conflict, right? And there are two examples I can think of where I personally was in a situation where that was not the case. And obviously, I don't 100% understand the culture, and maybe there's different situations where those things happen. But uh, when I was sitting and eating lunch in Japan, I was sitting there as an outside table, and... Um, it was uh, an as- Asakusa. There's like a little walkway you can go through with a bunch of shops and food places, and there's like a little bento place on a corner. And um, the place I was eating, there was a police officer, which was really funny. The police officer, when I sat down to eat, ran over to me, and I thought I was doing something wrong. <laughs> and he put a he put hand sanitizer on the table. <laughs> and, uh, but like the way he was running at me was like urgent. Ready. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. Um, Anyways, but, you know, that whole thing aside. But he was standing there, and a uh, guy biked past him when there's very clearly signs that say no biking. And he yells at him, no biking, essentially, right? And the guy just goes. He just does not turn around, turn back, right? So clearly in that moment, that man did not care. <laughs> so there's that. And then also um, in terms of like conflict, uh, when I was in Japan uh, visiting that one manga artist, um, I brought up, uh, we, were, we were walking around, like she didn't speak English, right? Or like not enough English for us to really have any deep conversations or anything like that. So it basically what it was, was we would point at something, say something out loud, and then we'd be like, ah, oh. <laughs> the extent of the interaction, which, you know, whatever. For me, it's novel enough to have a good time. For her, I don't know what she was getting out of it. Um, but I did at one point point to, there's a maid cafe with like a cat girl on it. And I pointed at it, I was like, yeah, <laughs> kind of thing. And her demeanor shift really fast after that. And she, we walked a little while, got quiet. And then she told me how creepy Akihabara is. She got really into it. So I'm sure what she was saying was like, it's creepy that you did that, which is fine. Um, you know, I did it, you know, not really thinking about it. Um, and and one of those moments is just like, you would not really like, the expectation I think would be that they would just not say anything and then they would go on. So like, there's definitely like, it's, it's really important to remember that every person is an individual person, right? And just like in America where there's stereotypes about Americans, in Japan there's stereotypes about Japanese people and stuff like that too. So anyways, Protecting my butt (laughs) is what I'm trying to do right now. Um, Did I give an answer? I don't remember. Uh, So I would be open to it if I saw an opportunity. Um, I think the big thing would be career. That would be number one. Could I find a career that would make sense in Japan? Um, You know, I don't know. Um, You know, if I'm in a position where I can continue to be able to do remote work, Um, you know, I used to work with a guy who was like, I think he's in Italy or something like that. And he mostly worked with us companies. So he just, you know, worked on weird hours. Um, but you know, as long as he accommodated what we needed, uh, I don't think it was really a problem. Right. Um, so potentially I could end up in a situation where like I could do contract work for English companies, but still live in Japan. I don't know the legality of that. I don't know the visa situation of that. Um, but again, like, I I don't have any plans or thoughts on that. So anyways, uh, live your life though. If you want to move to Japan, man, figure it out. I think it'd be a great experience. Uh, and if it doesn't work out for you, uh, it's not for you and you can always move back, right? Uh, is it expensive? Maybe, (laughs) but you know, if you have the resources to do something, I think you should do it if you feel good about it. So, uh, I just don't feel good about it right now. So maybe someday I'll feel good about it, but I'm in my thirties now. So... Which is actually pretty young, right? It's one of those things that it's easy to be like, oh, I'm in my 30s. I didn't learn enough Japanese at this point. Therefore, no go. Um, but, you know, I've had friends who who, who changed their entire careers, um, you know, in their, in their 40s and things like that. And I think that's like super inspiring to see. Um, so, you know, always know it's never too late. Because I think if you sit there and go like, it's too late for me, um, then, you know, I think it is easy to get that mindset for a lot of things. Um, Maybe be realistic about it, right? Uh, you can't be like, oh, man, I'm 40, but now I want to play for the boys' baseball team. And it's like, no, you probably need to go play with the adults, man. <laughs> so, so, yeah. But anyways, financial stuff. Um, A lot of financial – I think it's the end of, like, the third quarter. I don't know. I think every company has their own thing. A bunch of companies ended their financial quarters – and uh, and also, I think, year-end quarters as well. So they're reporting on, yeah, they're reporting on the end of the year, basically. It's basically the end of, of the year. So kind of recapping 2023 and things like that as well. Um, one thing I thought was interesting is uh, Game Data Library, which I actually uh, uh, talked to a little bit um, with the PCFX fan club stuff, which was nice. Um, but uh, they uh, recently put up a, a tweet kind of, like, analyzing some of the numbers and things like that. And um, one of the the pie charts they had, basically, was mentioning the fact that, like, Basically, the the software sold in Japan, uh, 84% of it is Switch software. This is physical copies, I will say. So, you know, at least when it comes to console game market, um, they are still dominating like crazy. And Nintendo is 50% of that software, of of, a software as a whole, I, I believe, if I remember correctly. So, Nintendo is dominating, um, all that stuff, which I think there's some interesting questions to ask. So if you don't know, the Switch is basically the best-selling software hardware in Japan ever at this point. It surpassed the DS recently. Um, I believe the PSP is below the DS, so I think that it has surpassed that as well. Um, And I think one of those things that I think every fan of something should to some extent be concerned about i don't know i think i think to me i used to i wrote an article i used to write articles (laughs) i did used to write articles for vg charts um but a long time ago i wrote an article for vg charts that was about how being a loser is being a winner um and it basically was talking about how when uh companies get big and successful usually they're less likely to uh make interesting tries at different things like they're less interested in, in in giving up ground on things they're less interested in you know, making, making, uh, these kind of like big swings and things like that. So you get kind of like a status quo situation rather than something where you are getting, you know, the, the, the kind of best treatment you can. Like, I think, I think if you're a Microsoft fan, Microsoft's been doing a lot over the years to try to figure out, you know, how to make you happy. Um, and you know, how successful they've been is a whole other thing. But you know, when it comes to a company perspective, I think they're, they're more worried about making, making you happy than Sony is overall. Um, but anyway, so, uh, you know, I think there's always that concern. Nintendo did make a comment about like, you know, being kind of complacent, um, with, with the switch being successful and stuff like that. And they basically more or less said, Hey, we've been here before. And, um, you know, we, we, we plan to continue to operate with like a sense of danger, I think is the exact quote or whatever. And, um, you know, I've always been wondering as we get close to the end of the switch cycle, like how different is the next switch going to be? And I think, uh, if it was three years ago, I would have told you probably not very different, um, but I think now there's a lot of competitors in this space, um, w- the Switch space, that is maybe slightly concerning. I think if there was a, a blanket, you know, one-to-one Switch 2, you know, I think it would do well enough at the very least. But I don't think, um, I, yeah, I don't know if it would, uh, I don't, I don't think, I guess what I'm saying is like, I don't think the Steam Deck would like destroy the Switch. I'd be very surprised if that turned out to be the case, but Anyways, they were kind of talking about, you know, continue to innovate and things like that. But I think at this point, Nintendo's going to just keep, I mean, that's just like the line you're going to say at a company. I don't think any company would say, oh yeah, we, we've gotten complacent. <laughs> so we'll see. I think it, to me, it's less about words and more about action, but, um, but yeah, but one other thing that came up in this as well was, uh, from this data was third party, uh, well, maybe I should say third party, any publisher that's not Nintendo, <laughs> And their separation of um of sales numbers and things like that, and basically what their their split of the digital market is. And one thing that kind of jumped out to me, and it kind of I think the reason why I want to talk about this is kind of conflicted with some of the things I was I was seeing this week in regards to Konami. Because if you don't know, there's some I I've been keeping track of this, so sorry if I get this wrong. I think Silent Hill stuff has been coming out lately related to some Silent Hill remake stuff and Silent Hill like a new game, and like apparently like it's not very good or something and i I don't know if it's a full game or just like an early access thing. I don't know. I haven't been keeping track of it. People are unhappy about Silent hill um and you know people have been unhappy about Konami here in the West for a long time, basically since Kojima got kicked out of Konami right. And so, like, there's this really big thing about, like, oh, Konami messed up their company. They've they've ruined they they ruined their mo- business models around games and things like that. Konami is the number three third party publisher, like, software sales wise when it comes to physical software in Japan on this list, outselling Sony <laughs> in terms of software, uh, again, retail software in Japan. So. And also another thing I was actually looking at, this is kind of a separate thing, but like, this is part of different numbers, but this week Konami's baseball spirits was the num- number one smartphone revenue game. And so like this idea that like Konami really messed up the game industry and destroyed their game model. Look, I'm not going to sit here. I have not sat here and like compared the money they made before versus the money made now. And like what the opportunity cost could have been of like, if you invested more money in AAA production, if anything, AAA production seems to be kind of at a dead end. <laughs> it seems like you have set number of franchises people are willing to do. And then, you know, licensed games, like, you know, the Spider-Man games, stuff like this. And this is something that Phil talked a little bit about in those LinkedIn emails as well of just like AAA game production, just being a really hard space to navigate now. Right. So this idea that like Konami screwed up by getting out of it, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. Um, but you know they seem to be doing well enough. I don't know if that like resulted in profit. Ultimately, your your revenue does not mean profit, right? The number of you, so units you sold doesn't mean profit, right? Most games could sell million co- 7 million copies and be profitable. Spider Man Two, you couldn't. You have to make seven million co- copies sold and to break even, right? So there's a lot of different ways games can be d- determined to be successful, right? But yeah, Konami surface level wise seems to be doing fine I think the problem is is that in the US in the west and in English speaking areas as a whole Konami is not visible in that success, right? So we can't look at their arcade games. We can't look at their mobile games. We can't look at their, you know, whatever, right? Their 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 the Mobotaro Densetsu, right? Like how much of those Switch sales were Mobotaro Densetsu? Like I'm gonna guess a lot of them. <laughs> so I don't know how many other Switch games Konami put out in that time frame and how successful they were. But you know, they seem to be doing all right. So it's just something to keep in mind. I understand why people are upset about Konami and how they operate. But I think it's, again, coming back to the thing of just like, look, I'm not going to sit here and say I understand if Konami is successful, but there are other data points here we can look at and pretty immediately see they are at least in these top areas in retail software in Japan, and then also smartphone revenue this week, at least. Smartphone revenue, I will say, goes up and down a lot. So, um, yeah, anyways, I just want to get into that. (laughs) So that's really all it for like for general Japanese game numbers. Um, One company I want to highlight in specific outside of Konami is uh, Marvelous. Um, Specifically, they talked about Fashion Dreamer. If you remember correctly, last week I talked about Fashion Dreamer and I I, kind of alluded to the idea that like the information I saw seemed to be implying Fashion Dreamer was doing pretty dang well. Um, guess what? The information I saw did not <laughs> did not roll out. This is one of those situations where it can be on the top of a chart, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it was uh, successful per se. So the game sold 500,000 copies uh, worldwide, as far as I can tell. Um, I believe that is both physical and digital in that case. 60% of those were outside Japan as far as I'm aware as well. So mostly in the West is where it sold. So I think the breakdown is like 300,000 in, J- in the West and then 200,000 in Japan overseas specifically I should say for the the West because I don't know how they categorized that exactly so um but this was less than what they' were ex- they were expecting now it doesn't sound like it was maybe unprofitable they said it was successful to a certain extent but they basically said it wasn't selling at the rate they wanted it to do and um you know it was slower than expected. Um, they do see it as like a IP that they origin they may continue to work with. So, you know, again, doesn't seem like the hugest, uh, uh, downfall, but you know, it, it, it basically sounds like they, they were expecting more and, I, and like kind of was, I kind of was wondering, well, what, cause like 500,000 copies seems like a decent amount for a fairly niche game. Um, and so I kind of want to compare it to style savvy sales. Cause that's kind of, you know, with fa- since Sophia being a part of this, I think that's probably, the barometer of where they are probably looking for sales numbers for you know a dedicated fashion game on switch um i don't know what like games like nicola sell on 3d or on switch maybe they're a different you know kind of um penetration but i feel like nicola does not exactly have the mainstream push that like well calling marvelous mainstream is another thing but i feel like marvelous is gonna push their games harder than than uh Fuyu with nicola right um I know I haven't really explained what Nicola or for you is. We're going to just pass by that. Anyways, the point being (laughs) is um, I looked into uh, VG sales wiki, which I'm going to say did not look into these sources. So take these numbers with a grain of salt. But their numbers for style savvy was basically the original DS game sold about 3 million. Trendsetter sold 1.5 million. That's the first 3DS game. So that's like a 50% cut in sales. Fashion forward, second 3DS game cut down to about a million and then styling star was about 450,000 units. So you you can see why fashion dreamer, not fashion dreamer, style savvy probably was not an attractive IP to continue. Right. Um, but I'm curious if they were looking at these numbers and saying, okay, well, fat, style savvy as a franchise, those three games on the three DS, I'm going to tell you right now from the outside, they, this is not true about the games, but from the outside, If I'm going to look at a screenshot of that game, I could not tell you what the difference is. I can tell you those are style-savvy games. I would not tell you that they're new games. You can show me screenshots from all three games. I'd probably think they're all the exact same video game, right? So I wonder if there's a feeling that like, well, if we freshen it up with a new aesthetic, um, a new approach, stuff like that, something that's going to distance it from style-savvy while still capturing that core style-savvy fan base, if we can expand this franchise- in a way that would get it back up to that million plus number kind of thing. Um, I don't know if that's, that's just my pure speculation with that, but that's my thought on maybe what they're expecting. So I would say, again, we don't know how much money they spent on it. And it sounds like it probably was profitable to some extent, um, based on what they're saying. And it's going to continue to sell. Right. Um, so these are just short term numbers for now, but you know, it is one of those things that's, uh, interesting to see. Like, you know, I I always have a really hard time reading Japanese company numbers and what they expect because I feel like the the expectations of the U.S. market versus Japan is very different. So usually 200000 alone on paper in Japan for a game like this, I would think, oh, that's actually pretty good. Um, so, but, you know, I don't know how to read that market very well. So don't take that as me, you know, saying anything with that. So I'll be curious to see what they do. Um, you know, it's I think there's also a great question of like, you know, when we look at things like you know, um, style savvy on the DS and 3DS even to some extent, um, you know, mobile phones were just the, the penetration of those and the people playing games on them was just very different back then. And, um, you know, you have a lot of companies doing those games on phones now, right? Um, you have the, the Nicole, not Nicola, love Nikki series or or whatever, shining Nikki, things like that. So, and I'm sure there's many more games like that, but th- that's kind of the big juggernaut, right? So um, it's one of those things that I think is, is it's interesting to to think about exactly why this type of game maybe didn't succeed on the Switch. And I, I, honestly, personally, I know a lot of people have a lot of problems with how Fashion Dreamer turned out. I'm not going to say it has no role in the sales numbers. I suspect the people who are expecting style savvy out of this game, exactly, probably are in the minority, if I were to guess um, in terms of like the potential market of what they're trying to reach, maybe not so much the people who actually bought it, but the potential people who would buy it. I would imagine that was probably like a segment of what they were thinking about, not the entirety. Right. Um, and, and so I, I don't necessarily know if that had that, that disappointment had a huge impact on sales. Um, but I don't know. I saw someone recently was a recently played Fashion Dreamer first, and they went back to Style Side. I didn't watch the whole video because it kind of started to ramble on a bit. Says the man rambling on a podcast right now. Um, but you know, I I, I definitely uh, thought that was kind of an interesting um, perspective to have. Uh, but it seemed to be more about. Um, discovering style savvy maybe that's the thing is that like i didn't really necessarily have a lot of interest in somebody discovering style savvy from fashion dreamer i think more of i think the bigger thing for me would be somebody who liked fashion dreamer that didn't play style savvy that'd be the topic i'd be interested in um and i think i kind of realized as i was going through there that like oh he's just gonna sit here give me a walkthrough of style savvy i don't really need somebody to sit here and explain style savvy to me (laughs) so so yeah but um anyways Speaking of girly games, though, girly games, girly games, um, I like, I like the, the tag girly games a lot more than I like games for girls, but I don't know, I don't know if girly is a derogatory word, I, when I say derogatory, I don't mean that in, like, the most intense sense I say that, I don't know, it's like one of those things, like, I say horrific all the time, when I really don't mean horrific, I really just mean, like, intense kind of thing is probably the thing so sometimes I use words bad sorry (laughs) but anyways um girly games I I like the sound of that better than than games for girls uh I really wish there's another name for games for girls I don't I don't like that name I don't even like girly games that much I I just wish there's some other name that wasn't like specifically gendered in my opinion but you know that's just my own opinion it just makes it confusing as well because like when, pe- when I talk to people about games for girls, you'll see this on the PCFX podcast if you watch that. I mentioned games for girls and what happened is we started talking about Angelique and I'm like, no, 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 no. These are not games for girls, the genre. They're games for girls, don't get me wrong, but they're not games for girls. <laughs> it's just stuff like that. I'm just like, oh, I wish there's just a better word for this stuff, but um, anyways- Um, there's a Japanese, uh, TV show that, uh, happened on NHK, um, called Game Genome. I think we may have talked about this show a long time ago. I don't remember under what context, but the name sounds really familiar. And I feel like I brought it up on here at some point, but, um, they do a variety of episodes. They have something on Fatal Frame, Earthbound, had like Shigesato Itui on there. They did an It Takes Two thing near City Skylight. So they cover all sorts of types of games and things like that, right? Um, and I don't know if it's like a big anniversary this year. Let me think. Would Love and Barry be like 2004? So it's like a 20 year anniversary maybe, um, for, for this stuff. Uh, but yeah, they, uh, had a, a, a show that was about Mushy King, the beetle battling game and Love and Barry, which we don't know those two games. They're both published by Sega. Um, they both had very similar target markets. Mushi King being more aimed at boys, Love and Barry being aimed at girls specifically, um, and uh, they also were using the same hardware as well, and they were based around, uh, you know, collectible cards, right? And kind of it's kind of where the genre, the the Japanese labeling of the genre collectible card games comes from. I, again, another thing, another genre I've got kind of some beef with because I think while the cards are an important part of that from the arcade perspective, when you bring that to the home with like Love and Bear or not Love and Berry, what's that game called? Happy Dance Collection. The definition kind of falls apart despite it being a very similar game, but you know that's the genre. Story of genres, right? Um, but you know they're both kind of, of, of early implementations of that, along alongside some other other franchises as well. But um, but yeah, so basically this show I think it's like an hour long, and they basically brought on people to talk about uh these two these two games. The, the kind of the focus of this show seemed to be kind of this idea of growing up with Mushi King and Love and Berry. I think, I think the, the machine translation was like Love and Berry and Mushi King on the stairs to adulthood or something like that. So, um, but, uh, they brought on some, uh, interesting people, some fashion model, uh, who likes Love and Berry, uh, came on. They also brought someone on for Mushi King. I don't know if I specifically noted who that was, unfortunately. Uh, but Love and Berry, I believe it's the same fashion model who did the photo shoot with Love and Berry about a year or so ago. So, um, but it, but you know for this I assume anniversary 20th anniversary of Love and Barry, um, they've been doing various live streams, Twitter posts on Sega, all that stuff. Right again. Bring back Love and Barry in your revivals program, Sega. Jeez. You care about it so much, yet you won't give it to us. <laughs> uh, the Mega Man problem uh, with Love and Barry. <laughs> Anyways, we've been doing a bunch of this kind of stuff. And, um, you know, I think basically the the summary of the show was is that these were games, like what, what made these games notable. Again, this is the show saying this, so I'm not necessarily making these claims myself, um, were arcade games specifically aimed at children was uh was rare and basically um, most arcade games were aimed at older boys and girls so when we talk about children I think we're talking about you know the younger edge of that spectrum when they when they talk about that and they talk about like the locations and things like that and how game centers we're less of a focus for games like Love and Berry and Mushi King. And that's why you end up in like shopping centers and things like that, which when, if you remember last week, I was talking about Dragon Quest cross blades and having to go to shopping centers and things like that to play Dragon Quest Crossblades. So it seems very true of that today as well. People, kids basically playing at places that are not necessarily dedicated for people coming together to play games and things like that. Right. Um, but yeah, they, they kind of talked about it having kind of a, that laid the foundation for, for arcade trading card games um, and talked you know about various aspects of the system. Um, if you don't know, Machine King is kind of like a uh rock paper scissors kind of bug fighting game kind of thing, which you know, if you don't know, bug collecting and and I think to some extent bug fighting in Japan is like a is a kind of a kids kind of pastime in a lot of ways. And if you you know, there's a reason it's in like you know my summer vacation and stuff like that, um, because it seems like it is a a popular thing with kids at least of a specific era, right? Um, and one of kind of the fun things they talked about was like, cause I mean, you have three buttons on the system, and so you basically have to um uh choose which action you're gonna take with your beetle. once you scan your card and, and stuff, and um so they showed pictures of kids putting towels over their hands so it covered your your hand so people on the, the sitting beside you couldn't see what you were putting in. It is the the, the most uh basic implementation of uh of uh, John Madden's uh. Play selecting on the VMU for your Dreamcast, um, but instead with towels on your hands, which I thought was kind of funny, um, kind of thing. Um, but but they talked a little bit about that game. Uh, that one I think was uh, the big kind of dialogue about behind that was basically creating scenarios where um, even if you don't have the best beetle. Um, you can kind of come back, right? I think it's very like Mario Kart kind of sentiment as well. Of just like there's always the chance that even at the last little bit of health, your beetle can push through and overturn the o- other player and things like that. So I haven't played Mushi King to really say how that that um, shows in the gameplay, I will say. I don't know if there are. I think it's a DS game based around it. I don't 100% know. And I think it might use a similar scanner. I really need to get a Love & Berry scanner at some point for DS so I can finally go on my Love & Berry journey. Um, but anyways... So they were kind of talking about that being kind of the background of that game. And for Love and Barry, you know, obviously it's more fashion game. This is a, if you don't know Love and Barry, if you are new to this podcast and haven't stopped listening at this point, um, you know, this is a fashion game. And so you dress up and you get a score based off your fashion. And then you play like a little rhythm game and things like that. And they talked about basically the the, the idea was, was to kind of teach kids, appropriate fashions for different venues and things like that how true this is is another thing i think sometimes when we do these things um we make games we we kind of retroactively assign meaning to what we do i think i do that with videos as well where kind of retroactively assign meaning to a video because we don't necessarily know what we're doing at the time when we do it i think that's true of everything anyone does for the most part it's like we don't always know what we're doing in the moment um but basically talking about like you know showing people the different occasions where you can uh, you know, dress up and like the basic fashion pieces you need for that and how that can apply to your life and things like that. And uh, one interesting part in here they mentioned though that I thought was neat. So if you've heard me talk about the one time I've played Love and Berry, I complained about the fact there are no music note trails. So basically what happens is this little, um, I don't know what it's called, tambourine or something like that, shows up on screen, you hit it and it goes bing, right, a little disc with little bells on the side of it or whatever you call them, little metal things metal circles you hit it and it uh makes a noise right and so it's like and so you you slap your hands together and stuff like that so how love and berry plays is i believe there's only one button for the rhythm part and you just time the hits with hitting that note and the problem when you don't have like music note trails is that the only way you can really learn a song is by memorizing it otherwise it's all reaction however Despite me complaining about this, and I think me being like, you know, looking at games of that era that frequently were like that. And I and I often will complain about that aspect and be like, oh, music notes aren't here. Uh, music lines to the notes aren't here. So, it's one of those things where I'm just like, it, it'd be nice if that was there. But they mentioned the fact that they were like, we didn't want to distract from like the fashion specifically. So, we basically wanted to make the UI not show this information you're going to stare at. Um... Which makes a lot of sense, in my opinion. Um, whether that is something that is a good design decision is another thing, right? And I think it's probably, you know, again, changes what, like, what your focus is, right? Um, you know, when I think about Dog of Bay, you know, I made a video about that on my main channel, if you haven't watched that. Um, and the fact that, like, you cannot look away from the notes on the bottom of that, s- bottom of that screen, so you cannot understand, like, what's happening on screen. Like, like Paul, the dog, is dancing on stage. And he's doing a lot of really cool dance stuff, and apparently was the hardest <laughs> hardest one to do for some reason. I forget where that information came from. It might be literally in the bio where they were like, if you listen to his bio long enough, they're like, this is this I caught I had the most expensive song in the game to animate. But Paul's dancing on screen, and you don't see any of that. <laughs> so, so like it is one of those things where you know I, I I think I can respect that that decision of we didn't want to distract from the fashion so. Really minimizing it to the immediate thing you need to hit to hit notes and being something you can kind of see out of the corner of your eye or kind of like, they didn't say that specifically, but in my head, that would be the intention, right? The corner of their eye, you hit it and then you can hit the the thing there, right? So... I don't know. It gave me like a better appreciation for like what was going on there. And like, I think it comes back to a lot of the things that I say these days about game design and stuff like that. It's like, there's really no right or wrong answer with game design. And so it's like one of those things that like, I don't like objectively right decisions in game design. Obviously, I think there are things that are going to appeal to a more mainstream audience more than other things. Right. But, like, sitting here and saying, like, this is the right game design decision is, I think, never really the thing. I think you can only say this is the right game design decision for me and what I want, right? So, and then on the other side of that, developers can only say what's the right game design decision for what they're trying to do, right? And so that's why you, you make these decisions. And I think it, whenever, like, this is maybe not, like, a, a, maybe I'm overstepping here. But, you know, I, I think a lot about, like, how certain game design things have kind of um, homogenized between games at this point. And I feel like that restricts how much games can try to do different things personally. But, you know, that's kind of neither here or there in this conversation. But, um, yeah, I thought that was an interesting note that I just never really thought about with um, Love and Barry that much. Um, They also talked a little bit more about, like, not playing the games, but what the cards do for you outside the game. And, And they talked about, like, basically... Um, how, when you, when you have your cards afterwards, they want you to basically continue to be, you know, immersed in that game after you leave. And so the cards basically are ways to represent, you know, in the case of Mush King, your, 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 your bug. And then also for fashion, you have your, your cards as well. And there's little, like little bits of uh, information, like, Hey, you want to learn about this bug or Hey, you want to learn about this thing of fashion or whatever on these cards that give them information otherwise. And And I think from a business perspective, right? The more somebody has a reminder on their head, this is not something they said in the thing, but the more somebody has... A reminder in their head about your game the more they're going to want to play it right um so we're going to push you notifications through physical cards (laughs) but they also talked about you know basically you know when you're waiting in line um to play the game you know you can talk with other people share you can exchange card trades and and ultimately kind of make friends and again this kind of comes back to me saying like i don't know how much of this would have probably been true when they make these decisions as much as something they thought you know, after the fact of like, oh, this does happen. Um, but they do talk about, um, you know, basically wanting to encourage adults to be more sociable. And they felt like basically having kids talk over a shared interest was, was something that they wanted to really push. And so like giving people physical ways to talk about games, you know, while, while waiting for the game and outside of it was, was a way to help do that. So anyways, I thought it was a really interesting thing. Uh, overall message was that these games were built as uh, things that were uh, helping ki- kids grow into adults. How true that is a whole other thing. So uh, I thought it was interesting insight into something like this. You know, obviously when it comes to Love and Barry and Mushy King, I, I don't think we're getting a lot of this kind of coverage in the West, this kind of coverage. I'm not talking about my coverage of this. I'm reading a machine translated article, please understand, <laughs> but, but, you know, I think these types of conversations aren't happening as much um obviously but this is a very japanese-centric franchise very japanese-centric phenomenon that happened right so i think it's really interesting um to 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 read through this kind of thing so anyways that's kind of it um but yeah i I, I think that shows Kind of interesting. I don't know if it, there's like summaries of these other shows. Again, Fatal Frame, Earthbound, It Takes too Near. I'd imagine Earthbound fans maybe. I don't know. The fervor around Earthbound really feel like it died off. If there's still a crazy Earthbound fan base, I imagine they found that NHK show and tried to extract everything they could out of it. Um, but I don't know. I'm not really connected to the Love and Berry fan base. Love and Berry fan base. Are you out there talking about the Love and Barry TV program? <laughs> Anyways um one last story to talk about i know this is going uh, it feels like it's going long at least i'm uh, looking at my time stamp it's like an hour here but um one last thing i want to go uh for again another japanese centric story but that's what we just kind of do right now i feel like that's just kind of the approach of the show at the moment um uh automatic media bringing it back to the start uh, <laughs> today article talking about uh geolocation um, geolocation games, rather. I forget what they're called in in the West. Typically, oh, there used to be a name for it. Oh my God, stuff like Pokemon Go and things like that. Uh, there's a name for it. What was it? Oh, I'm forgetting it. Oh, well, we're gonna call them geolocation games. You know what I'm talking about when I say Pokemon Go. Um, and just talking about like the success of those games in Japan. Uh, and they kind of highlighted the top five games. And um, you know, I think the point of this article is more or less, hey, these games are popular because hey guess what japan relies on public transportation so people are out and about walking around so games where you're out and about walking around popular um and they one thing that was actually kind of interesting before i get into this whole other conversation about this this thing um they mentioned that activity for those games is at its highest during the day when people are working on breaks and things like that and then when they're going home i think specifically they were talking about you know when they're going to work from work or home and then also um um, break specifically but then other mobile games typically their their activity time is after 9 p.m which again makes a ton of sense just it's just one of those things I didn't think about the, the tracking in that way and like activity hours for games and things like that and it's something I probably should think about because Final Fantasy 11 was a game that largely one of the things with Final 11, I'm sorry we're you on know, such a it's, it's tirade right now a side thing Final Fantasy XI, if you don't know, one thing that they presented as a benefit of Final Fantasy XI is that they only had one set of servers for everybody. And so, culturally, everybody mixes together, which has its own benefits. It's kind of one of my beasts with Final Fantasy XIV. Again, Final Fantasy XIV has its own reason for doing these things. not necessarily a bad thing. But um, but they could save money on server costs because they didn't set up NA, EU, or Japanese servers. And the game ran slow enough that they could do this without too much trouble, right? Um, and so what happens is you get different time frames that people are playing the game at. So you have the North American playtime, the European playtime, the Japanese playtime. And one thing I'm finding with Horizon 11 is it's very North American focused. So when you overnight things in the economy start to break down, not in a way that's like terrible, but in a way with when you wake up in the morning, chances are things that are in high demand are typically more expensive because nobody's selling them because everybody's freaking asleep. <laughs> so, so so, basically like crystals really dry up overnight, which are used for crafting things, used for crafting basically everything. And so the prices get super high in the morning, but then when you start getting to the end of nighttime when people are trying to like you know they're they're wrapping up they're listening to stuff on the auction house crystals are a lot more prevalent and the price drops so there's this really big up and down dipping of parts of the economy in horizon 11 that i don't feel like we're a part of following 11 because i think european and japanese player bases are there there's my side segment let's get back to what we're talking about so um, the top five games they talked about was, if you don't know, Dragon Quest Walk is the biggest one. Dragon Quest Walk has surpassed Pokemon Go for a while. I think it's two times the size of Pokemon Go. I don't remember. I'm not looking at the chart off the top of my head. I'm not going to. Don't quote me on that. Go look at this out media link in the description if you really want to know. Um, Pokemon Go is uh, the second one to that. And the third one is Monster Hunter now. Significantly lower than those first two games. There's a very clear difference in the market there. But number four is a game I did not know about. and This is called Ekimomo Memo. Memo. Um, and, uh, I've not looked into what that means. Probably train memo. I don't know. I don't know what the Japanese word for train is, but Eki sounds like it would be. I don't know. Don't ask me any questions. Stations, don't ask me anything. I don't know what Japanese. I stopped studying Japanese years ago and only recently restarted and I have not bothered looking into some of these words. Um, anyways, but, um, but yeah, it's one of those games where you can, uh, use basically geolocation to go to different train station and you collect different, like, anime characters and stuff like that. I don't know if they're, like, actual anime characters i did not look into it super deep i get the feeling that they're like mascot characters for the train stations if you don't know i passed by a, a very handsome man uh mascot character at i think the ikebukuro train station or something like that anyways um you know some of these train stations have mascots and things like that and i was actually looking at a wii u game recently as well i forget what it is um the translated name is local railroads local characters and a journey all around japan it looks very cute i'm very interested uh <laughs> anyways you know a Japanese board game, something I continue to uh, think about playing, and I have some, so I just need to play that. I have like hardworking people on the Wii or something like that. Um, but yeah, so it's like that kind of thing. And there's like a 3DS game that was also very similar to that. But yeah, it's a very Japanese specific thing. And I just had no idea that it existed. So um, yeah, fourth biggest geolocation game in Japan, um, but significantly lower than Dark- Dragon Quest Walk and uh, Pokemon Go. But every other game is also significantly lower than those two games. And the fifth game is uh, Nobunaga's Ambition. Uh, the, the, what's it called of that? The, um, geolocation game. Let's say, I just, I wish I could remember the name of what it's supposed to be. I'm sure after this podcast, I'll remember. Don't message me later and say, it's this pen. I will have either forgot I cared or, or, um, figured it out after this. So (laughs) anyways, um, that stuff is just all kind of interesting. So, um, you know, one thing I haven't also thought about. Sorry, this is like a side traction entertainment expo um, going on this week. This is welcome to my my convention where I literally cannot stay on track for this entire podcast. I don't know the flexibility of the Nobunaga Ambition franchise. I've, a, I cannot tell you what normal Nob- Nobunaga's Ambition looks like, but B, there's a Nobunaga's Ambition online and a Nobunaga's Ambition geolocation game. I don't know what the normal ones look like and how many spinoffs are there. Does it have any relation to the Romance of the Three Kingdoms series? I don't know. All that like stuff. I feel bad. If you want me to be like culturally completely ignorant of things, all those like Chinese and Japanese, like (laughs) old, old timey China and Japan games. I have a hard time telling what of them apart. I literally have no idea which ones are which. Dynasty Warriors, Chinese. Got it. Samurai Warriors, Japanese. Got it. Show me screenshots of those games. Could not tell you the difference. So there's a place that I could definitely uh, better understand the differences. Obviously, I understand they're two different countries and diff- two different backgrounds. I'm not saying oh they're all the same, but like surface level wise, it's kind of like Korean and Chinese for me. Where like if I hear Korean and I hear Chinese being spoken, I have not been exposed enough to either of those to be able to tell them apart. Japanese I can hear like a sore thumb though. So you know, but I listen to a lot of Japanese right and uh, ideally no more Japanese because I studied it so anyways this is kind of a rambly show but uh, I, I thought it was all kind of interesting stuff overall so I hope you um, enjoyed that and uh, yeah we'll see what happens uh, two weeks from now again sorry for like the thrown together Kofi segment Jillian you got your corner name got booted this week just because I wasn't thinking about it uh, <laughs> so what did we call it we called it Megamint the Megamint break or something like that Freak down Um I don't I don't know what I said. Whatever that is, Megamint, thank you. That was Megamint's second question. Hopefully that was a uh uh acceptable uh its response to you, Megamint. Um but yeah, I had forgotten to put the Kofi segment in here and I realized I was going through it was like, "Oh, wait a second. I forgot to put it cuz I don't appreciate you." <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, thank you again, everyone who's supporting me on Kofi. Uh, again, you can support me on Kofi and ask questions if you want. We're going back to Jillian's corner next week. If we don't get any questions, uh, we got about five more questions in Jillian's corner, and then from there, we don't know where life's taken us. Somewhere, it's go- we're going somewhere. Um, anyways, uh, in terms of content coming up, nothing really strong planned. I don't have another podcast highlight till the month after March, so um, I don't have any immediate plans to do any Kofi posting. PCFX fan clubs on a hold for now until we do our next episode. Um, uh, yeah, basically, I ain't giving you anything. So, <laughs> so please enjoy your uh, moment of nothing. Uh, I'm gonna maybe play Grand Blue Fantasy Relink here shortly uh, after I edit this podcast, and uh, I should get my groceries around that. I started doing delivery for groceries. I don't, I don't wanna get into why. There's a reason. It's not the best use of money, but I uh, have a reason for doing it. So. Very important. (laughs) Anyways, (laughs) I'm going to leave you guys. OneCentralWorld.com is the website. Check it out if you want to go see what's been up lately. Um, Everything should be there from the last few weeks. If you want to check it out. Otherwise, um, enjoy your next two weeks of your life. Hopefully something good happens to you. Maybe you'll move to Japan. Bye.